Look, good morning. Welcome to this morning's session of the China Research Group. We are extremely lucky today to have Dr. Rana Mitter, Professor Rana Mitter, who has been a good friend of uh, some of us for a long time uh, in, uh, in his writings, and it's now a privilege to meet him, well, virtually anyway. So um, it is an enormous privilege to welcome him because what Dr. Mitter has been doing over the recent years is looking very hard at the relationship with China, not just from a UK perspective, but actually also from a Chinese perspective, China's relationship with the UK, which I hope very much he'll talk about this morning, and indeed China's relationship with a few other countries. Now, I hope that we will also come on to China's relationship with India and perhaps other countries in the region. I'm struck slightly by the news coming out of Myanmar, and I wonder whether maybe we'll get onto that as well. But as usual, if you want advance warning, if you want uh, updates on anything we're doing, you're very welcome to log in uh, to chinaresearchgroup.org, sign up for our newsletter, follow us on Twitter, you know the drill. So please do join us, do follow. Everything we do is public. Everything we do is uh, available on the internet afterwards. So if you miss a session, you can always go back to it. On that, Rana Mitter, Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford. It's a very, very great pleasure to welcome you and over to you. Thanks very much indeed, Tom. And I hope, by the way, with audience as well, this will be very much a first name uh, session. Uh, you know, uh, let's not be formal on, on any of this. And also to say thank you very much to the CRG for inviting me. I'm aware that the origins of this group uh, lie in the Conservative Party, although it stretches wider than that. I should just make clear that I'm speaking here on an entirely nonpartisan basis, uh, as I think this meeting is. And uh, I should also add that although I work for Oxford University and very proud to do so, I'm speaking here um, on my own um, initiative, not um, in in any sense representing the institution. And on a day when we know that the government is helping to encourage academic freedom, I know that you'll uh, encourage me in that particular endeavor. Could I start with a couple of minutes of, of comments that in a sense is a little unfashionable because I'm gonna start with some good news. And in this day and age, that's something that I think is perhaps rarer than it might be. And that has to do with, I think some very useful statistics to start us off with in terms of understanding how the UK is perceived in China. I think that's one of the things that actually, at the moment, is a very useful addition to the matrix of the debate about uh, China in the UK, because I think that a lot of it has been taking place without necessarily huge amount of awareness of how the Chinese perceive what's going on. And as I say, I think one of the really good pieces of news, and when I saw the figures, actually, they surprised and, and delighted me, um, were brought up by the British Council just a couple of weeks ago. They're available online. They were done by Ipsos Mori, extremely respectable polling organization. And they show that in soft power terms, the UK now stands as number two in Chinese perceptions. It is the second most uh, warmly regarded or perceived country in the world in this particular listing with an 81% favorability rate. Um, I don't know, Tom, in your position, whether I dare give you perhaps the slightly worse news, which is that number one is the French. But uh, uh, in that particular uh, uh, competition, I'm sure that uh, we'll be happy to swap uh, positions number one and two. I should say it doesn't work the other way around. In the, uh, the perceptions of China in the UK, China is very much down the list at number 26. So there's quite an imbalance there as well. And it must be said that culture and education are amongst the factors, amongst the reasons that the wider Chinese population and particularly the youth contingent in China really do have a lot of regard for the UK. That is the second statistic. And I think that's something really important in terms of what I hope we talk about today. And I know that Tom wants to address, which is how we can have a 
conversation, dialogue, and sometimes even more confrontational discussion with China, which holds entirely fast to our values, but also tries to understand how we can make a difference rather than simply shouting into the void. And that's the fact that we have a 67% trust rating amongst this wider Chinese population, mostly middle-class city dwellers, I should say, but that's a very high level in terms of the general feeling of trust that the Chinese surveyed have about the, uh, the UK. Let me just take a minute or two to outline some of the areas, some of the sources that I think provide this level of, perhaps to some of you, surprisingly high regard for the UK in the Chinese public sphere. And I'm gonna use that word public sphere again because I think one thing that's really important is to remember that when we're talking to China, we shouldn't just be thinking about top leaders who've spent their entire lives, you know, in uh, the, the political machinations, but actually the kind of ordinary middle-class urban dwellers living in an increasingly recognizable lifestyle who mostly don't think about politics, but think about things like, you know, are they gonna be able to pay their mortgage? Are they uh, going to have their savings disappear in a kind of financial scandal? All the things that occupy day-to-day -day feelings in, uh, uh, in, uh, amongst the Chinese middle class. And so to give a couple of quick examples of, of areas where I think you might be surprised, but pleased to know that the UK scores highly. I don't know how many people here are familiar with Middlesbrough, but quite a few young Chinese involved in the media in China are. And one of the reasons is that Teesside University's film and television uh, production course is extremely highly regarded. And there are quite a few alumni of it in the Chinese media environment. Now, whether you approve of what the Chinese media do in terms of uh, the, what they broadcast, and we speak in the week when uh, CGTN has no longer been allowed to broadcast on air in, in the UK is another matter. But in terms of the high regard that the Chinese media professionals have for this perhaps somewhat under-regarded uh, institution in, in British terms, I think is really salutary and worth knowing. And of course, it's part of that wider diaspora of 100,000 Chinese students who are part of what I personally consider to be a great liberal project. In other words, bringing the brightest and best of the second biggest economy in the world to our country for two, three, four years, and inculcating them with all the values of academic freedom, open debate, and um, uh, uh, an openness of mind that I think are absolutely associated very much with Britain's reputation, not least in its higher education sector. And I speak as someone who has supervised a, a range of undergraduate and graduate students in very sensitive fields like history, where I'll very openly say, uh, I am able to teach them things that they are not really able to talk about in the home country. One day, Chinese will be able to discuss their own history in a free and open way. But at the moment, actually, the wider world, including the UK, plays a tremendously important role in enabling that very important part of the history to be um, to be talked about. So let me sort of finish off, if I may, my initial comments by talking about a way in which our current conversation about China and the UK might be uh, usefully um, directed. One thing I want to make very clear, and you know, Tom and I have talked about this before, and I think we'll talk about it again, is that there is absolutely no question that as a great liberal country, the United Kingdom must stand up for freedom and for values which it considers, we consider, to be universal, and that is individual human rights, civil liberties, freedom of travel, academic freedom, and whether it's lawyers and academics being arrested or constraints of freedoms in Hong Kong or camps in Xinjiang, these are all things that we cannot in any way ever be constrained from talking about. But we do need to think in that context about where we want 
the direction of travel to go. Too much of our discussion about China in the public sphere, politicians, media, business, tends to be very one shot. You know, if we say this, China will stop us doing business on X. Or if we don't say this, then we are falling down on our responsibility to this particular set of, of liberal values. We need to spend more time working out what's going to happen one step after, two steps after, three steps after we take a particular decision. Just take one specific example, because I know we want to get onto the, the discussion. But right now, there's a lot of excitement about the fact that the UK may join the CPTPP, the Comprehensive Progressive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And actually, as an, as an Asia specialist, I'm delighted to think that the UK is getting serious about Asia. It's a wonderful thing. But does our values uh, proposition, the idea that we should be standing up for human rights means that if in the near future, as seems likely, the US does not join CPTPP, but China applies to do so, are we saying to our fellow potential members, the uh, Malaysians of this world, that actually we as the UK would veto a Chinese entry into CPTPP? It's the, kind, the answer might be yes, the answer might be no. It's a good question to, to ask, and there's no one right or wrong answer. But these sorts of questions about if you choose one path, what's the next step and the step after it need to be thought about in a much more granular, much more detailed sort of a, uh, uh, of a way. So I will perhaps put my um, thoughts to uh, kind of a pause there and say whether you're hawk, dove, or whatever particular type of uh, description you want to give about your position on China, please be informed. Please make sure you know about the country. And my last piece of advice is that for anyone who wants to kind of get a wider view, I would ask you, if you understand America, one of the reasons, one of the ways that you find out about it is by tuning in, no doubt, to, to Netflix and, and television series that tell you something about the wider culture that you're engaging with. If you've never watched a Chinese television program, many of which are available for free on YouTube with subtitles, why not do that as part of that wider exercise of finding out about this country, which whatever we think about it, is going to be of tremendous importance to the world and indeed to us for a very long time to, uh, to come. So I'll lay those thoughts down there, if I may, Tom, so that we can be in, in conversation. Look, um, Rana, you're demonstrating exactly why we were so keen and have been trying to get you onto a uh, China Research Group event for so long, because you lay out what I think is the most important question, which is the challenge. Uh, and many of us are extremely conscious of many aspects of Chinese policy in recent years. And you mentioned quite rightly, uh, Xinjiang. Uh, in fact, you touched on Tiananmen in your history uh, section. I presume that's what you were referring to. Uh, and of course, you know, one can talk about Tibet, Mongolia and Hong Kong, but one also has to talk about uh, the challenge of economic uh, cooperation, uh, not just uh, directly, but also through surrogates, uh, whether they're in uh, sub-Saharan Africa, South America or indeed Southeast Asia, and how uh, we cooperate with those two. So perhaps I could ask you uh, to talk a little bit about how China sees the Belt and Road Initiative and what it's actually trying to do. Is this simply, as some people put it, a form of neo-colonialism? Is this a reflection of the growth strategies that worked within China being rolled abroad? Is this, well, I'll leave it there. What, what is it? Absolutely. And um, Tom, it's a really good question because the Belt and Road Initiative is probably the single most visible aspect of Chinese foreign policy that you know, the rest of the world has noticed. And direct answer to your question, is it a form of neocolonialism? Is I don't think it is. And the reason actually is not because uh, not because of China's own self-declared reasons that it's trying to create a community of common destiny and, and all of this, which, you know, is, is what the Chinese would call a, a biao ti or possibly a 
Kohau, a kind of, sort of slogan. It's because actually, in a sense, there's much less to the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, than meets the eye. It's not one huge top-down organized um, you know, system of control from Beijing. To be fair, nor was the British Empire back in the, the day. You know, a great deal was, 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 was bottom up as, as well. But it's also, and I think this is important, a response to a whole variety of pressures and demands in the global south in particular, that we in the West, I think, need to pay more attention to. If you go to a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa, there is a crying desire there for huge amounts of infrastructure spending. And at the moment, countries in the Western, you know, the Western Hemisphere are not doing a huge amount, I think, to try and respond to that. So essentially, a large part of what China was, is doing with the BRI is pushing forward commercial ventures that actually were pretty much in plan already and putting a sort of brand name, a kind of wrapper around them in that sense. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a geostrategic intent in part of it. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard of a company called Huawei, Tom. You might have once or, once or twice uh, have, have come across your, uh, uh, your, your consciousness. One of the things that, of course, is potentially very valuable to China is the idea that you can have a sort of path dependency. If you are going to the global south, and I'm not just talking sub-Saharan Africa, but also Latin America, where this is a huge issue at the, uh, at the moment, and Southeast Asia, then basically getting a Chinese system, Huawei, ZTE, whatever, uh, on the ground for 5G is a starting point for then continued dependency, as we found from our own laws, which are now going to have to rip out Huawei equipment from the the UK. So I think the right way to see it from the Chinese point of view is that this is a highly commercial initiative, which has geostrategic advantages. But I think it, the wrong way to see it is as a kind of imperial plan. And the reason for that is that it hasn't by any means been a fully smooth rollout. In the last year or so, actually, uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, investment has actually you know, plummeted in various ways. And it's sort of been rebranded. One of the ways it's been quite successfully rebranded is the term Health Silk Road, which you may have seen, which has to do with the rollout, particularly of Sinopharm, Sinovac, and other Chinese um, uh, vaccines, particularly in places in the, the Middle East and, uh, and elsewhere in, in, in that region. So you could argue the Belt and Road Initiative is a sort of term that keeps on changing. It's very protean, it's very changeable, but it's really a sort of wrapper for a wider sense of Chinese geostrategic intent, rather than being a very carefully worked through plan. Well, you know that my former opposite number in the parliament in Delhi, Shashi Tharoor, would have said roughly the same thing about William Dalrymple's great works on the, uh, on, on the empire, empire there. So it, it is interesting that the the economic driver uh, is uh, absolutely the key to this, as you as you put it. Um, but it does raise very serious geostrategic challenges. And in that light, how do you think other people are seeing this? Because when we look at, um, obviously, when we look at the world, I see it from the UK perspective. That's hardly surprising. How do you think countries like Japan or South Korea, or indeed India, are seeing this? How do you see? China's perception towards them and their response? I mean, it's an excellent question, Tom, and it's one of the ones that the UK, I mean, we are going to have to spend a lot more time thinking about now we've decided that the Indo-Pacific space is one where we want to have a serious role and in you know, redefining a post-EU Britain as, as global Britain. So this is going to be a very, very live conversation. I think the short answer to an important but quite complex question is that the closer you are geographically and physically to China, the more you find you have to make accommodations to it. One of the things that I think in a sense is almost kind of ironic about the fervor 
of the China conversation we've had in the UK in the last year to year and a half is that actually at the moment, China makes up a very small proportion of our total trade, for instance. So while I've mentioned, uh, you know, something that I think overall is a very good thing, which is encouraging Chinese students to, to visit, the UK, to, to study in the UK. It's not as if China is necessarily a kind of huge part of the overall economic picture of, of, of Britain. That's not, of course, true for any country in the Asia Pacific region. So South Korea, is a really good example of a country that has a dilemma with which we need to become much more familiar and empathetic, which is an unashamedly liberal democracy. Well, I don't know why you should be ashamed of liberal democracy, you know, a proud liberal democracy, one very hard, you know, 30, 40 years ago, and, and I think now, you know, regarded as a very important part of the country's uh, development, a formal US ally with troops very much on its territory. And yet, of course, China is its primary trading partner. And it is, of course, also a mainstay of CPTPP. It's a mainstay of RCEP, which is the other you know, regional trade organization in which China is absolutely uh, a key actor. And having to balance those particular issues, the fact that the China market, whether we like it or not, is the second biggest economy in the world and a huge source both of supplies. I mean, again, if you are a South Korean high quality manufacturer, if you're a Samsung, if you're a um, LG, uh, you do need to, you know, have those factories at the moment in southern China, not just because they're cheap, to be honest, they're not cheap anymore. They're not cheap in the way that Vietnam is cheap, or Cambodia is cheap, or actually these days, the Horn of Africa is cheap because of the cross Indian Ocean uh, trading that's going on there. They're also very skilled. People have built up skills in South China in a whole variety of mid level areas of technological de uh, development that actually is very valuable to those regional economies. So I would say that all of those countries, I mean, Japan is another very good example. Japan, of course, has politically extremely problematic relations with China, although they're a little calmer now. Odd enough, because actually Prime Minister Abe and President Xi Jinping um, found themselves rather uh, uh, simpatico in, in, in various ways. But nonetheless, something like 40% of Japan's trade is with China. And we have to be aware that if we are going to form alliances of like-minded values, democracies, whatever you want to call them, then we are going to have to also be aware of the fact that these are not countries that either can or will or are able disengage or decouple from China in that uh, in that sense. I mean, a quick word about India, if, if I may, because I think that's a really, really interesting and important one for us in uh, Britain, partly because, you know, we have had, for obvious uh, reasons, a very long-standing relationship in Britain with uh, with India, and I guess I stand as one of the human capital examples of uh, why that might living uh, bridge, right? Living bridge. Well, that's well. I, we, we're always happy. I have to. You can build my infrastructure anytime, uh, Tom. <laughs> but there's a wider question here. You know, India has also been looking at a whole variety of yes or no type questions. Its trade relationship with China is not huge, and it's it's about $90 billion a year, and most of that's actually in China's favor, as is so often the case in these areas. But in a wider sense, it's also because of the Chinese confrontation over Galwan in the uh, Himalayas, and also the increasing sense that the development of Pakistan as a country, which of course has a very strong security relationship with um, uh, with China. And if I could do, by the way, a, a very quick plug here, uh, Tom, sorry about this, but tonight at 10 o'clock on Radio 3, one of the world's finest uh, radio stations, I'll be in conversation with various uh, Pakistani geopolitical thinkers about what China means there. So if you've got time, do tune into that or, or, or look, in, uh, look, in, look in later on, online on, on free thinking. But all of this is going is, is fueling a really, really powerful conversation in India right now. I have never had so many invitations to sort of, you know, zoom in in Delhi and basically say, which way should China, which way should India be going on this? Because, of course, the trade imperatives 
particularly linking India's fantastic service economy with China's capacity to basically provide really high quality tech, along with a huge set of security implications. This is the dilemma of so many countries around the world, but writ to the size of 1.2 billion, uh, billion people. And it's not entirely clear which direction India is going to go on that. Can I press you a little bit on, on, on the Japan relationship? Because we had a very interesting session uh, in the China Research Group a number of months ago, it would have been now, with uh, Minister Taro, who at the time was the Japanese Defence Minister now, as you know, the Cabinet Minister, who uh, was very clear that he was uh, keen to see Britain joining the CPTPP, also very clear to see that he wanted to see Japanese F-35s flying off the uh, British carriers, and so really pushing for a strong defence relationship and pushed as well the line, uh, the, uh, the observation, sorry, that um, intervention in Japanese airspace had risen to some sort of 600 incidents a year, which is a huge amount of probing by the Chinese Air Force. At the same time, Panasonic has uh, furthered its investment. It was one of the first, as you know, under mm -hmm. Deng to, to invest in China. And even Toyota now is doing a lot of uh, joint engine work in China, having tried to catch up, having sort of missed the boat in the 1990s. Uh, it's really catching up with sort of hydrogen production and so on. So we're seeing a very mixed relationship. And all of this comes down to, as you rightly put it, the contrast between the economic imperative and the security dilemma. When you see the Senkaku Islands and things like that, how do you see the tensions in the South China Sea? How do you see the tensions over Taiwan playing out? And therefore, this sort of Japanese, South Korean, and indeed to a certain extent Indian approach of rising two horses playing out? Really good question. I mean, on the Japan thing, could I add one other element? Because you said the economic versus security. But to you, of all people, Tom, I'd say don't forget leg three, which is values. Really? And on that, I, you know, I love Japan dearly. It's a place I visit often and hope to, to, to go to when the pandemic is over uh, again. And, you know, it is a it is, you know, the longest standing liberal democracy since 1945 in Asia. And we should be very proud of our alliance with it. It is nonetheless, I think, the case that if we are saying to our Japanese friends, you know, will you stand with us in support of liberal and democratic uh, values in, uh, in in China? They will, I'm sure, say absolutely yes. If you say, would you like to reduce, you know, if the price of that is reducing your 40 percent trade uh, with uh, with with China across the, the, the seas, are you prepared to do that? That is something that I think might get a dustier answer. And it also expresses the difficulty that we have because we're a country which has a relatively small trade balance with, uh, with, with uh, or trade relationship with, with China. We're in a position to some extent to choose how we play those particular cards, but we need to also be aware that other countries may have a vested interest in us being the values outrider while they take some of the uh, economic and security benefits from it. Nothing wrong with that, that's geopolitics, but we need to do it with our eyes uh, uh, eyes open. I mean, in terms of uh, clashes in the South China Sea and East China Sea, I think the East China Sea at the moment, despite actually what the minister um, said, is much less tense than it was 10 years ago in about 20, 2010 to about 20, 2014. Oddly enough, I think the arrival of a pretty hard line prime minister in the shape of Shinzo Abe um, in the middle of that decade led to a sort of reset of the relationship in quite a meaningful way between the Chinese and Japanese. And while we do absolutely have this continuing buzzing of uh, Chinese Coast Guard vessels just outside uh, the, um, you know, the, the, the maritime zone of the, the Diaoyu Senkaku um, Islands or Senkaku Diaoyu, if you want to go the, the other way around. Um, I don't at the moment see that as being an area where there's likely to be a, a major sort of, uh, of, of, of confrontation, not least because, of course, I mean, I think this is something that's worth saying, Japan may not 
officially have an army, but or a navy, but it has a self-defense force and it is an extraordinarily well-equipped and technologically advanced one. And most of those, I think, who look in terms of the comparison of the military capacity right now of the United States, Japan and its allies in that part of the world and China will say that China is making huge strides. Uh, but on the other hand, there is no guarantee at the moment that anything that led to a confrontation would lead to the Chinese coming out on, on top. And I think most sensible Chinese policymakers in private will, will say this quite, uh, quite, quite, quite clearly. The South China Sea, I think, is uh, a different and perhaps more dangerous environment because there are so many more players involved at that stage and because the US interest is not quite so clear. You know, there is a US-Japan security alliance and if Japan is attacked, then actually there's an absolute treaty obligation for the two to come together. With the other two questions you mentioned, Taiwan and South China Sea, it's not nearly as clear and therefore the uh, ability in a sense of China to use a whole variety of factors, including of course trade, to try and change the facts in the sea and the facts on the ground can be a lot more powerful on that, uh, on, on, on that front. In answer to your question about whether I'd see a confrontation, I, I think I'd go with one of the most astute analysts in Beijing of uh, the uh, region. And that's Professor Yan Xuetong of Tsinghua University in his relatively new book, uh, Great Powers, uh, Leadership and the Great Powers, and available in English from Princeton University Press. And I would highly recommend reading it for those who want to get a feeling for what a really interesting and well-connected geopolitical thinker in Beijing thinks about these issues. But summarizing 400 pages in, in a sentence or two, I would say that his take that, look, there's going to be a very, very cold piece between the various sides for a decade, I, I think is probably about where he would uh, say on that. But there is enough vested interest on all sides for this not to become a confrontation. Remember what the price of confrontation would be for China. China's leadership, China's Communist Party, China's party state really has one absolutely central goal, which is to make sure that it stays stable and prosperous and in control. And one of the things about confrontations outside your own borders is that they have a really, really bad way of getting out of control. I know that you have had distinguished service, uh, you know, in British uniform in recent years, Tom, so I don't need to say this to, to, to you. One of the things I do know is that the PLA colleges spend a very, very great deal of time looking at the way in which the Middle East uh, was essentially mishandled, I have to say, by the major liberal Western powers. And you know, I, I even have, I won't name names here, but a former student who I think wrote both the definitive, you can probably identify him through this, a definitive uh, uh, Chinese monographs, both on tank warfare and on Colin Powell. So, you know, there's a Chinese language PLA kind of book on, on him on up there too. And I think that there is actually, along with the belligerent language, which is huge, and along with the huge amount of military spending, which is one of the things that we should be very aware of and, and concerned about, also a great deal of caution in terms of working out where and when it's actually practical to, to put forward. I must say that there's also a tendency sometimes to see that when China, like many other countries, talks really, really loudly about some particular issue, it may be that the rhetoric is a distraction from the fact that actually this is not where the real kind of confrontation is going to uh, going to happen in that sense. So I have to think we have to beware of mistaking very loud and often very confrontational language for an actual intent for for policy. Well, that's certainly not something that's unique to China. And uh, as the world's greatest film puts it, never get involved in a land war in Asia. Something that I learned over ten years in Afghanistan. But there we go. Um, the um, 
I wasn't the first to learn that. The, the, of course, the underpinning of all of the relationship that we're talking about is economic. And if I may come back to another comparison uh, with Japan, although it's not certainly not a direct comparison, a lot of people in the 1980s and 90s were predicting Japanese economic dominance and then saw a period of uh, stagnation. Is there a possibility that actually what we're looking at in China is something similar? Are we seeing the demographics going against the Communist Party? Are we seeing, I don't just mean the age demographics, but also the uh, urbanization and industrialization demographics going against it. We're seeing uh, unrest, I wouldn't overstate it, but we're seeing some unrest in China, mostly connected to uh, environmental policies in terms of pollution. Are we seeing a new form of political engagement, even if it's at a remote level, in a country that has 90 million members of a political party out of 1.3, 1.4 billion people? Are we actually seeing China about, are we about to see peak China, really, I suppose, is the question in economic terms, and therefore many of these questions are going to become nugatory in short time? I think that... There is no doubt that the 2020s, I mean, the decade that we are now in, is going to be one in which China perceives itself as having huge amounts of um, capacity to act before the constraints that you're talking about. We should remember that I think uh, in the year 2029, I know that we have uh, Roos's Charlie Parton on the call who actually has all the statistics at his fingertips, but Charlie, I'm going to try and give one off the top of my head and you can correct me later. But I think from the year 2029, we're going to have 5 million fewer Chinese because the one-child policy and the constriction of the population size is basically kicking in at that, uh, at that stage. And really, I think one of the things that the Chinese party state is looking to do is to make sure that in terms of technological innovation, in terms of education standards, in terms of urbanization, it's got by the end of the decade to a stage in which that's a steady, sustainable state. In other words, to become essentially a lower end high income country rather than a middle income country, um, something a bit more like South Korea, but writ on a massive scale and without, of course, the political freedoms that uh, South Korea, uh, South Korea has. Here is what uh, and, and linked to that is a whole variety of other issues. Again, uh, I wouldn't be forgiven by Charlie, not least if I didn't mention water environmental issues and droughts, actually. I mean, Beijing is on the Gobi Desert and the new kind of mega city that's being built on the edges of that is going to be very, very taxing in terms of the water requirements that that sort of um, that sort of society has uh, has got to, to have to, to sustain that size of population. But you know, having said all that, I think that it's certainly the case that a China that actually, in a sense, does what the core proposition is, which is not get into fights with its neighbors, not decide that it wants to have a huge number of disputes with its own people on its borderlands, but actually gets on with poverty alleviation, gets on with urbanization and gets on with middle income. A little bit like essentially, you know, the China of perhaps 10 to 15 years ago, which was by no means a liberal democracy of any sort, but which allowed a certain amount of investigative reporting. Uh, newspapers like the Nanfang Dromo, the Southern Weekend did amazing, you know, reporting into kind of local level corruption, you know, train crashes, all these sorts of, uh, of, of things. That China, I think, is a lot more sustainable in, in literal as well as metaphorical sense in terms of being able to manage the disputes. And you mentioned environment as being an absolutely key one. I think that's right. Chinese middle class don't tend to go on the streets asking for the vote. They have been going on the streets in the not so distant past talking about air pollution and the way in which there's going to have to be a huge green shift. And to be fair, 
the party has been talking a lot more about the fact that growth can't just be numbers, it has to be green growth as well. We will see how much the rhetoric matches the action. There is, you know, a lot of exporting of, of the BRI we mentioned before, of things like coal-powered, sorry, coal-powered plants, power plants to Pakistan, which is not, I think, a particularly green uh, uh, contribution. But it also would be unfair not to, to mention that there is huge innovation in terms of green energy technology within uh, China itself. A final note on this section, which I think there is a subject that you've, you've spent a lot of time thinking about, Tom, which is the question of what the role of the Communist Party is. And the complexity of this outfit of 90 million people, I think, is best summed up by my saying this. The Communist Party is absolutely the organization that has written a national security law that has basically, you know, overnight, so end of June last year, clamped down on a whole variety of freedoms uh, in terms of ability to speak on politics that had previously existed in Hong Kong. It is also the organization that puts together little old ladies who sit at the end of the apartment blocks and the elderly gentlemen who basically go around checking that, uh, you know, children and elders are kind of getting on with each other and have, uh, you know, their local welfare allowances and so forth in every small shirtu, you know, kind of city district and small town in the aftermath of the, the breakup of the old kind of collective uh, unit system in China. And until one sees the Chinese Communist Party not as a political party like the Conservative or Labour or Republican parties, but actually as a sort of huge honeycombed organisation that sits through absolutely everything in China. It's more like a sort of combination of a bureaucracy and a religion put uh, put together uh, one, you know, in, in, within the kind of confines of, uh, of China as a whole. I think understanding it in those terms is one of the ways in which we have to come to terms with the fact that whether we like it or not, and clearly there are many things not least to do on individual rights that we you know, absolutely don't like, that the Chinese Communist Party is not a sort of political party to be of, of the sort that gets voted in and out of office, but rather as a much more all-encompassing sort of body that stretches across society. Thank you very much for that. Look, we, it won't surprise you to hear that, um, despite being incredibly agree, there's plenty of other questions that have come in. Um, and I'm going to turn, first of all, to uh, Claire Coutinho, who's uh, not only a great friend, but has uh, already made a mark in many of these questions. Claire, over to you. Well, thank you so much for you know, a really exceptional uh, talk this morning. Um, my question is about, um, well, I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about the relationships with China and the, the use of, of a more sort of strategic and nuanced um, a way of working with them. Uh, my question is, we seem to be sort of leaning to quite a confrontational antagonistic approach to China. Where do you think the other levers are that we aren't using as much as we should be? Thanks very much indeed, uh, Claire, and I'm aware of your uh, record in Parliament. As uh, Tom has been saying, you've certainly been making a mark. and We hope we'll see much more of you. Um, I think that the short answer to the question is that there are some confrontations that are going to be um, inevitable. And if I may, I'm going to steal from the words of um, Ambassador Liu Xiaoming of the People's Republic of China, who's just um, departed the UK after 11 years here. And in his farewell talk, uh, you know, in, as, as, as he left the UK, he said in the midst of a variety of other comments, of course, with two ancient, I think the words are something like, in the course of two ancient cultures like China and Britain, we will not always see eye to eye, which I think is probably as close to a diplomat, particularly a Chinese diplomat, can get to saying, look, that there are going to be some things, and we do know that, where the two sides are not going to be able to get uh, get to each other. So I think the slightly, the, the, the kind of building on that to, to suggest something practical, Claire, 
is think back to those stats I gave you at the beginning for the British Council, and thanks again to the British Council putting them together. Britain as a whole, British society, British culture, who we are as a people, is known and recognized in China amongst the middle classes. They have an idea about us in the way that actually I think we still don't about the Chinese middle class in, in Britain, which is one reason I suggest you know, watching more, more tele programs on, on, on YouTube. But I think that those high trust levels and those high levels of feeling that really the UK is a country that you know, basically uh, is, is worth engaging with is a starting point for us to have a conversation, not necessarily that's more nuanced, because I think that suggests sort of, you know, kind of hunkering down on, on some of the issues that we really think are very important, like, like, like Hong Kong, but putting it in context and saying, I mean, it seems to me that the following sentence should be a plausible one. Saying to China, saying to China when we say China, we're talking actually, I hope, about Chinese friends. And by the way, if you don't have Chinese friends, I would say that you should make some, because if you're going to be thinking about China and talking about China, finding out what Chinese people think about their own country as well as ours, both those who are more favorable to the regime and those who are, are not, is a really important part of, of, of that conversation. So when talking to those friends, it seems to be perfectly possible to say, there are so many things about China over the last, let's say, 40 years, which are extraordinary. You know, to go from poverty to the second biggest economy in the world is not an easy thing to do, and China has done it. Poverty alleviation, bringing China from where it is to a country which has $10,000 per head, um, average GDP, middle-income country, again, that is not a trivial thing to do. Tech innovation, you know, even 10 years ago, the idea that China would be one of the two or three, four maybe countries in the world, along with Britain, but also, you know, Israel and a few others, where actually tech innovation of a really, really important kind takes place. Yes, some of it is intellectual property theft, let's be honest, but a huge amount of it is R&D spending at a very, very impressive rate, British government take note, but also um, providing the education that enables people to innovate in that context and to use that. And also, of course, you know, the BRI, the good side of BRI, which is investment in a whole variety of global South countries which need uh, to, to build their infrastructure. And then to say, at the same time, there are areas where we simply cannot agree. We are not going to agree about Xinjiang. We're not going to agree about Hong Kong. We're not going to agree that uh, lawyers who speak out against the government can be picked up and arrested and, and held. And these things are the basis for our conversation. And we in Britain would like it to be a conversation, not a tantrum, not a shouting match. And if you're willing to talk to us in this very calm and measured tone, we will also talk in a calm and measured tone, but that does not mean we will stop talking about things that are important to us, whether it's security, economics, or values. On that very basis, I'm going to come straight on to Charlie Parton, who you already referred to, and who's no doubt got some rather better questions than me. Charlie, over you. Unlikely, Tom, but I just wanted to take you back, Rana, in this very interesting talk to what you started with, and that is the view of China of the UK. And you talk yep. very eloquently about what the people think, but it's really what the party think that's probably um, more important in terms of our relations with, with between the UK and China. And if those take a downturn and we get into the sort of level of Australia, which is perfectly possible, um, where, first of all, do you think that that's going to change the view of the, of the Chinese people towards us? Um, but, but secondly, uh, it brings out the question of to what degree the UK is important to China and whether it feels that, it, that, that we are going against its interests vis-a-vis -vis us, it is able then to say, well, we're not going to lose very much. We can afford to be quite nasty. How, how do you view that? 
I think it goes the other way around, actually, Charlie. And thanks very much. You know, if those who don't know, Charlie Parton is one of the most informed commentators on China working in the UK. And his report from King's College London on how the UK should engage with China is, is a must read and, and is free to download, as so many of the best things in life are. OK, first of all, I don't think the UK is going to be in the position of Australia for quite some time, if ever, because actually, as you know, one of the major points of leverage was that 30 percent of Australia's trade is with China. And, you know, it's more like like three or four percent for, for us. So for us, the question is, as global Britain starts to define itself, and this is a really, it's a really interesting and important question. I'm going to phrase it this way too. Do we decide that actually we would rather take actions that do not allow us to engage fully with the world's second biggest economy, which is a perfectly possible choice because we haven't gotten that situation yet, but we have to make it with our eyes open, or are we going to be in a position where we actually have to think about how to expand that market while being realistic about what kind of relationship we can have with a China that doesn't want to be told that it's going to have sanctions placed against it or uh, the, the kind of more robust geopolitical measures that can be taken against a country like Russia, which is far less central to the global economy than is China. It's not, I think, an ethically easy dilemma, but it is a real one. It's one that people have to start talking about in a more um, uh, open, uh, open sort of a way. In terms of... Um, what we can uh, we can do well you know i'm biased because i work in the higher education sector jolly but i would say that if there's one thing that could really cause riots in the streets in china you heard it here first if so i don't think sadly it's to do with many of the values and rights issues that we are talking about it's if the chinese government was in a position to start saying you know what we're not going to let your kids go for undergraduate, masters or graduate courses in any of the Five Eyes countries. You know, they can't go to Australia, they can't go to the US, they can't go to the New Zealand, they can't go to Canada, they can't go to the UK. Because Anglophone higher education is one of the things that is beginning to define the cosmopolitan, internationalized middle class in China. Uh, you know, the famous case of General Secretary Xi Jinping, whose daughter went to Harvard, you know, she could have gone anywhere, she went to Harvard, and I suspect it was probably a very valuable and important experience. And one of the reasons why I am a huge advocate of saying we should be encouraging, you know, within reason, but, you know, as many Chinese as possible to be studying in the UK. It's one of the great liberal things that we can, uh, uh, that we can do. Of course, this doesn't mean that um, we can simply have, I think, an entire conversation in which our own geopolitical position is entirely equivalent to China's because we're a very large economy, you know, sometimes forget that, but we have particular areas of strength. We have also flexibility and nimbleness. And I think the decision as to where we're actually going to engage with China is one that needs a lot more detailed, uh, detailed discussion. So I look forward to that being part of the public sphere in the near, near future. Can I uh, thank you enormously, uh, Rana, and just ask you to keep your questions just slightly briefer because we, right. uh, your answer slightly briefer because you're you're I such a mine of knowledge that uh, we're, we're going to struggle to get people in. The the question, by the way, of of uh, Chinese students and the leverage that we therefore have over Chinese attempts to influence universities is a separate one and one that we address in our. Uh, 2019 report, November 2019, on autocracies and democracies, which you'll, you'll remember. Um, I'm going to bring in Catherine Fletcher, who's another wonderful colleague of mine, and then, uh, just so, so he knows he's coming on, Armando Armas, who is my Venezuelan opposite number and a good friend, who uh, will no doubt bring a very different perspective. Catherine, over to you. 
Tom, Rana, thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Um, I'm particularly warmed by your kind of entreaty to seek to understand better. And I think that's the way my questions are framed. I have a huge respect for the thinking that goes on within the Chinese Communist Party. And I don't understand why they have um, engaged the policy with the Uyghurs. It's an Indo-European language. Any, a, a, a brief examination of it would have understood that this was not going to stay hidden. And it just seems daft for their global ambitions. And they're not daft, so it means I don't understand something. Similarly, um, you know, engaging in confrontation on the Himalayan border and attacking Indian uh, soldiers with, you know, makeshift weapons, that feels daft. They're not daft. So almost what am I missing? <laughs> I'm going to work to keep this very short because, uh, you know, this, this, this could be a very long answer, but I'll make sure it's not. The very short answer, I think, and by the way, I think we should, we should whatever, however short the answer, say that, you know, I think all of us are horrified by what we hear coming out of Xinjiang and you know, the sooner that changes the policy, the, the better. Okay, I think a large part of it stems from the fact that China has a political culture that is very much steeped in a history of feeling defensive about the outside world, repeated invasions and occupations that have essentially turned it into a country that feels that if any of its borders become vulnerable, then they will be violated. And if you think about the history of why Hong Kong, to give a you know, good example, uh, exists as an issue in the first place, it dates back to the Opium Wars of the, eight, of the 1830s, 1840s, obviously past history for us in the UK, very much current affairs for the, for the Chinese. And if you multiply that sense of besiegement along with a political culture, I mean, if you think about the Chinese Communist Party and who some of the uh, you know, most important and influential thinkers uh, are who have, have shaped it. One who I mentioned in a recent article in Prospect magazine who is often underestimated is the German legal theorist Karl Schmitt, who basically regarded law as being a sort of bourgeois indulgence that was really there to serve the exercise of power. Uh, you know, this was not a Chinese idea that uh, they came up with, it was an, a European importation, but from the side of European history that perhaps we sometimes fail to remember when we praise ourselves as being wonderful, great liberals and Democrats, the, the the whole time. So, you know, part of the answer is, I think that there is this rather, frankly, in some ways old fashioned view that the only way in which Chinese national identity can be defined is very top down, unified, monolithic. And my end answer, my last line to that is a line I use often, but I'll use it again, because I think it's true. China, well, the Chinese leaders, and all of us should remember, China is a plural noun, and it's at its best when it is at its most plural. Thank you very much. Yes, we're certainly seeing what looks like Han Chinese nationalism spreading into some parts, which does raise many causes of concern. Now, Armando is a great friend and chairs the Foreign Affairs Committee of the Venezuelan Parliament. And so my opposite number and uh, you're very, very welcome. Please, over to you. Um, thank you very much, Tom. Actually, since the beginning of the year, I'm not anymore your counterpart. Uh, oh, but, uh, sorry, of course, you guys changed. Who is uh, struggling the resistance? Uh, there is an extraordinary uh, women colleague and very good friend, Olivia. Uh, but uh, I'm still doing uh, the work uh, with her and the team. So my, my question was basically about uh, your perception on this religion, bureaucracy type of party culture that you mentioned about the Communist Party. And wouldn't that, don't you think it could permeate in the way transnational state-owned enterprises 
uh, which amounts up to a, a thousand in, in, in China. It's the largest, uh, you know, uh, country with uh, with the trans, trans, transnational owned enterprises, followed by the way by Russia, Germany, and France, uh, which have ties uh, with with China. With other, uh, so how this could you know permeates in the culture when they're doing businesses with fragile democracies, especially like in Latin America, also emergence emergent aiming to democratic uh, countries in Africa or other places everywhere. So uh, rather than the, 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 this challenge of dependency path through technology, how can technology be a, be a driver for uh, ideology in the future to come? And how this poses a challenge for fragile democracies, especially nowadays when you, when you mentioned that um, um, due to COVID, uh, they tried to reshape this Belt and Roads uh, initiative to uh, giving uh, more healthcare, uh, but it's always uh, attached to technology, right? So I wanted to you, your possession on that. Thank you. I think, uh, thanks very much, Amanda. Great, great question in Venezuela. I suspect you're very much on the, on the sharp end of some of these questions. I think the short answer I would give is that what China seeks in areas where it has overseas influence in terms of economies is stability above all. I don't think that China is looking to, unlike the old Soviet Union, it's not looking to transmit a particular form of ideological government. And that means that if a country is democratic, but essentially you know, does what's favorable to China, China does not seek, I think, to, to overthrow the government there. What I've written in actually in an essay that is in this month's uh, edition of, of Foreign Affairs is that China does not seek to maintain liberal government out of principle. So what's happened in Myanmar is a really good example. I don't, I mean, I have no idea, but I, I don't think there's any Chinese involvement in the overthrow of the democratically elected uh, government uh, there. And it was, uh, you know, very much an internal issue, but clearly China is most interested in keeping its investments, um, you know, safe. And if the government that does that is a military government, then I don't think China's gonna object. If it's a democratic government, I don't think China will object either. In that sense, I think what we have to think of China doing is not, being a country that's spreading its ideology as such, but rather one that has no particular interest in maintaining liberal values if it can maintain its own economic order. It's a slightly different um, take on, on what they're seeking to do. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much, indeed. I was going to come to one question, one last question. Um, Forgive me as I just search for it because somebody posted it in the. Um, here we go. Um, this is from David McKinley. Uh, will there be a weakening of Hong Kong in terms of people emigrating to the UK and the financial companies thinking more of Singapore as their staff are indirectly threatened to stay quiet? And how will this affect how China relates to the UK? I think that the economic and social makeup of Hong Kong is likely to change quite significantly in the next few years. But I don't think that, I mean, this is partly an optimistic hope, but I hope that what I say uh, next is, is, will turn out to be true. I think that 
in terms of some of the things that continues to make Hong Kong valuable, including being a common law site of arbitration for Belt and Road Initiative contracts for companies that frankly do not want to be arbitrated under domestic Chinese law, that it will be important to maintain that element. And I think that if it is seen that Hong Kong is purely um, a sort of satrapy of uh, Beijing's legal environment with really no you know, room to, to maneuver at all, then actually that will scare off a lot of those investors. However, I think it's also worth noting where an awful lot of the growth is coming from. Shenzhen, just across the border, is one of really three huge areas of tech innovation in China, along with the Hangzhou area, where Alibaba, of course, is, is called headquartered, uh, and uh, Haidian up in the uh, northwest part of, of, of Beijing. And the combination of Hong Kong's huge pool of financial capital and its ability literally just across the border to put that into one of the most innovative technological um, as, uh, zones, ecologies in, in the world, is really, I think, the story that China wants to tell, I mean, the mainland, about Hong Kong in the 2020s, because it's a story about tech innovation and growth. Now, whether that story has that much to do with the UK, I don't know. There are, of course, questions about whether or not London might become nonetheless another site of um, financing and a major pool of capital that gets involved in that. But I think in the end, it's an interesting and important question, but separate from the immensely important question of emigration and of freedoms and of values. And it's important to understand them as both being part of that Hong Kong story. Well, look, uh, on the story of Hong Kong, and as you know, many of us um, have been very, very uh, strong advocates for uh, the changing of the visa requirement for Hong Kong DNOs yeah. uh, uh, to come to the UK. So I'm very, very grateful to the Home Secretary for recognising that, former member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. There you go, you see, our influence continues beyond our borders. Um, the, uh, this has been a fantastic session, uh, Rana, and I'm, I'm really grateful to you for taking the time uh, to help inform us in what is quite clearly one of the most challenging questions we face, uh, but also to hear how we are seen, uh, because of course only by understanding how we are perceived can we uh, hope to influence others. I hope very much that we'll be able to invite you back on uh, in a different guise perhaps at some point, uh, and, uh, and I hope that you'll stay in touch with what we're doing and, and, and keep us on the straight and narrow. You've, you've been a very good friend and helpful advisor in the past already. So on that basis, I am going to simply say thank you very much indeed to remind everybody that on the 11th of March, we will have a session on China's economic rise and on the 18th, something to do with the Belt and Road Initiative, which will have to be updated in the light of uh, Rana's comments, no doubt. Um, um, but I'm, I'm looking forward to those very, very much. Please don't forget, sign up to our newsletter on chinaresearch.org. Uh, and please, of course, tonight at 10 o'clock on Radio 3, Rana will be talking to uh, several Pakistani gentlemen about investment in that country. Uh, and if you want to see uh, some phenomenal infrastructure, go and look at the port of Gwadur, which is just extraordinary. Uh, and the, the change from when I first visited uh, 20 years ago, and it was literally a fishing port uh, with about three boats in it to what it now is, is remarkable. So thank you very much indeed. I look forward to hosting everybody again very soon. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye for now.